please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. I trust that you're having a happy Fourth of July weekend. Pray that you are, that you're enjoying the freedoms that God has, has blessed us with. This morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to be taking a, a kind of a four-week uh, hiatus from the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be studying the book of Ruth together during the month of July, uh, Lord willing, and looking at, at that life and what it looks like to have a, a life of kindness and compassion and on, based upon God's covenant faithfulness, his, his covenant love. And so we're going to be considering that together as a community of faith during the month of July. Well, this morning, though, we're in Luke chapter 11, looking at verses 14 through 23, and if you would stand with me. In honor of God, if you're able to, uh, to read his word together this morning. Luke chapter 11, verse 14 through 23. I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demon by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom that is divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You may be seated, may God be glorified and our hearts encouraged through his word this morning, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this scripture, we thank you for the instruction that it offers us and how we are to live, and we, we pray that our hearts would be changed as a result of considering your word together this morning. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to read for you a portion of the children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. But before I read this little excerpt, let me set the scene for you a little bit. Lucy Pevensey, a young girl, has traveled to the magical world of Narnia, and she's come back, and she's told her brothers and her sister about Narnia, and they didn't believe her, of course. They thought she was pretending. Then her next oldest brother, Edmund, traveled with her, went to this world of Narnia and was magically transported back. And instead of confirming her story, he's lied and said that she was just make-believing. And now her oldest brother, Peter, and her oldest sister, Susan, are concerned about Lucy. And so they go to Professor Kirk, the wise professor, to try to ascertain how should they handle this, this sister who's telling them such incredulous stories. And C.S. Lewis writes that the professor sat listening to them with the tips of his fingers pressed together and never interrupting till they had finished the whole story. 
After that, he said nothing for quite a long time. Then he cleared his throat and said the last thing either of them expected. How do you know, he asked, that your sister's story is not true? Oh, but, began Susan and then stopped. Then Susan pulled herself together and said, but Edmund said they had only been pretending. That is a point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration, very careful consideration. Uh, For instance, if you will excuse me for asking the question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? That's just the funny thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up till now, I'd have said Lucy every time. And what do you think, my dear, said the professor, turning to Susan. Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter, but this couldn't be true, all this about the wood and the fawn. That is more than I know, said the professor, and a charge of lying against someone whom you've always found truthful is a very serious thing, a very serious thing indeed. We were afraid it mightn't even be lying, said Susan. We thought there might be something wrong with Lucy. Madness, you mean, said the professor. Oh, you can make your minds easy about that. One only has to talk to her and look at her to see that she's not mad. But then, said Susan, and stopped. Logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. C.S. Lewis in that scene, as he describes how Peter and Susan must respond to the story that Lucy is telling, is, is giving us an allegory. How Peter and Susan respond to Lucy is how you and I must respond to the claims of Jesus Christ. In the gospel accounts, Jesus Christ has proclaimed that he is the, the Son of God, and as Lewis writes elsewhere, we must decide, is, is Jesus Christ a, a lunatic raving about being the, the Son of God, or is he a liar knowing that he's not the Son of God, but telling us that he is, or is he in fact Lord? And as he proclaims that he is Lord, and coming the Son of God, and coming to establish a kingdom, he is in fact Lord and coming to establish a kingdom. Every person who hears that must respond. Sadly, most people, as they hear that Jesus Christ is Lord and coming to establish a kingdom, most people, as they hear that message, will not respond in faith. Most people will reject Jesus Christ's claims to be Lord. And as they reject his claim to be Lord, they will inevitably oppose the establishment of his kingdom. Instead of accepting Jesus Christ's claims to be Lord and and accepting those, those claims and working to further his kingdom as recognizing his lordship, instead they will oppose his kingdom, and they oppose Christ's kingdom in a variety of ways, don't they? Some people are openly antagonistic to Christ's kingdom. They oppose it with, with violence and with force. I was reading in World Magazine in addition from last month, and they talked about how in uh, Afghan right now, the Afghan uh, government that's been backed by the United States, uh, two people who converted from Islam to Christianity in 2011 have been sentenced to death and escaped from the country with their lives. Uh, militant Islam, uh, Islamic militants beheaded 
a convert to Christianity in Afghan this year as well. Some people, as they hear the message of Jesus Christ and hear it proclaimed, are going to oppose that message through violent and forceful means, opposing God's kingdom through violence. Some people are going to oppose the establishment of God's kingdom not through outright violence, but through, through mockery. Bill, Meyer, Bill Maher has produced a movie called Religious, and in it he, he mocks Christianity. He says you know, that his, his desire in making this movie is so that people will, will laugh at the beliefs of religious people. He said that he believes that, that religion is a neurological disorder. And so he wants people to, to mock the beliefs, specifically the beliefs of Christians. So some people will violently oppose Christ's kingdom. Some people will oppose Christ's kingdom through, through mockery and, and just jeering. Some people will oppose the establishment of Christ's kingdom through intellectual skepticism. Maybe you've heard of David Hume and David Hume was a philosopher who lived in the 18th century, and he was a person who, who was a skeptic toward Christianity. He wrote an essay on, on miracles, and as he talked about miracles, he came to the conclusion through his, through his logic and reasoning that there's no testimony that would be sufficient to establish the validity of a miracle. Therefore, he believed the logical thing was to reject people's testimony that they had seen or participated in a miracle, thus undermining the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. So some people, as they hear about Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom, some people are going to oppose it through, through violence. Some people are going to oppose it through mockery. Some people are going to oppose the establishment of Christ's kingdom through, through intellectual arguments, intellectual sophistry. But some people, some people, as they hear about the establishment of, of Christ's kingdom, are going to hear about the message of Jesus Christ, and in their hearts, they're going to reject that message. But their opposition isn't going to be violent. It's not going to be rude. It's not going to be producing tracks against Christianity. No, simply in the quietness of their heart, they're going to hear the claims of Christ. And they're going to say in their hearts, I don't believe that. And as Christ says to live one's life in a certain way, I'm going to say, no. Christ does not have lordship over my life. When he says to live this way, and I want to live that way, I'm going to live that way. And so they're going to oppose Christ's kingdom in very quiet ways. What I want to encourage you to do this morning is very carefully consider the claims of Jesus Christ to be Lord, a Lord who is establishing a kingdom. And here in Luke chapter 11, we see some people opposing Christ and his kingdom. And as they oppose his kingdom, Jesus Christ calls them, much like C.S. Lewis in that allegory, to logically think through their opposition to his kingdom. He says, look, here are two options. Either I am establishing a kingdom or I'm not establishing a kingdom. And if I'm not establishing a kingdom, here's what you would expect. And if I am establishing a kingdom, here's what you would expect. Now, logically think through your opposition. And what we're going to see is that, that logically a person should not be opposing Christ and his kingdom, but should in reality be working to further his kingdom. And we're going to talk through that as we walk through this passage together. And as we walk through this passage together, my encouragement to each of us is to look into our hearts and say, uh, and ask God, do I have a heart of faith 
that is trusting in Jesus Christ and allowing him to establish his kingdom in my heart through faith in his son Jesus Christ alone, or am I in opposition to his kingdom and the establishment of his reign? Well, let's first of all look at a very important question that we, look, we see in verses 14 through 16. There's a very important question that is presented in these verses. Look at verse 14. It says, now, he was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And so he begins with this, this miracle that happens in verse 14. It's almost like the miracle is a very small part of this overall story. It's over by the end of the verse 14. Jesus is casting out a demon. We've seen it before in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus encounters people with a variety of maladies, some provoked by the spiritual world, some just simple physical ailments. Jesus has authority both over the physical ailment and the spiritual realm. No matter what crisis is presented to him, he has authority over it. And as this uh, person is presented to him who has been affected by the demonic realm, who's unable to speak because of it, Jesus, with his authority, casts the demon out, and the mute man spoke, and the people we see here, marveled. They're astonished. Why are they astonished? They're not astonished because someone tried to perform an exorcism or invoked the the demonic realm or tried to to deal with the demonic realm. It was very common in Jesus' day for Jewish exorcists to try to exercise authority over the demonic realm. In fact, in in Acts 19, Luke's other book, Acts 19, we see that Jesus was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is in Acts 19.11. Handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then we see this in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus. So these, there's these Jewish people that are involved in trying to exercise authority over the demonic realm, and what, they would do kind of some crazy thing. They would, they would try to memorize certain prayers or have certain incantations or machinations that they would do in order to, to exercise authority over the spiritual realm, and there's kind of one common element. It was completely ineffective. And so they see Paul and his ministry, and they realize, man, Paul's figured out some magical formula, and as Jewish exorcists, we want to have this magical formula as well, and so he's using this name, Jesus, so we're going to use the name of Jesus and say these words, and here's what happens. They, they uh, use the name of the Lord Jesus. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And it's kind of this darkly humorous thing here. It says that uh, the man in whom there was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Didn't go very well for them. Now, Jesus here in Luke 11 is not all that remarkable in the fact that he's dealing with the demonic realm. What is remarkable about Jesus is his effectiveness. He says, go, and the Spirit goes. He says, speak, and this man is able to speak. That's very unusual. And now, as Jesus has just done that here in Luke chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus has has spoken, the demon has left, the man's able to speak, and the people are amazed, the people that are surrounding him are amazed. Now, there needs to be an explanation for why this was able to take place. Why was Jesus able to exercise this authority that no one else has been able to exercise? And two responses take place in addition to the people marveling. We see one response in verse 15, a, a charge. 
Some of them, verse 15 says, some of them says, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. You see what the charge is there? They can't deny the effect of what's just taken place. They can't deny the reality of this man who wasn't able to speak, now able to speak. So instead, they attack Jesus' methodology. They say, the game is rigged here. Clearly, Jesus and Satan are in this partnership. And Beelzebul is another name for, for Satan in Jewish Old Testament in Jewish uh, tradition here. Beelzebul, this prince of demons, Satan, is, has struck this deal with Jesus. And, and so now... Jesus is able to cast out demons because he and Satan are in on it together. This wasn't the only time that Jesus would be accused of being in league with Satan. John chapter 7, verse 20, the crowd say to Jesus, you have a demon. John 8, 48, the Jews answered and said, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? John 20, many of them said, he has a demon, he's insane, why listen to him? Now you say, how did this rumor get started? Why were people saying that Jesus had a demon? We see why in Matthew 12, 24, at least one possibility of the origin of this rumor. Verse 24 of Matthew 12, when the Pharisees heard, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. In other words, the Pharisees are trying to discredit Jesus' ministry as they see his effectiveness. And they begin spreading this, this rumor, perhaps, that, that Jesus is under demonic influence. He's, he's in league with demons. He and Satan are in on this together. Now, why is that so terribly wrong? One reason it's wrong is because it's blasphemous. It's so blasphemous, I have a hard time articulating their argument because it's so offensive to God and his glory. Here's Jesus Christ, God himself. Jesus Christ, God himself, and it's, it's God and his character that determines what's right and what's wrong. Righteousness is defined by conformity to God's character. Sin is any deviation from God and his desires and that which brings him glory. And here's God himself, the very antithesis of, of the very definition of righteousness. And this is very important to understand the rest of the story. And some people are looking at Jesus and the good that he's doing, and they're calling good evil. As Jesus works to establish the kingdom of God through righteousness and calls people to faith in him, people are looking at the very definition of righteousness and saying, that's evil. That's a blasphemous statement. And so it's wrong for that reason. The other reason it's wrong is because as Jesus tries to help people, there, others are opposing that help that he's offering. And so that which could bring a person true relief, faith in Jesus Christ as they accept this message of his coming kingdom, as he works to, to heal both, both physically and spiritually, there are people who should be bowing down in worship of Jesus Christ, are, in, are opposing Jesus in his message, and preventing other people to receiving the gospel that they so desperately need. So that's the first so Jesus performs this miracle, there's marveling, but there's this charge against him. There's also, we see in verse 16, a demand that's made. Some people say, verse 16, give us a sign. They're testing him. They keep seeking 
a sign. 1 Corinthians 1, 22, Paul, sell, Paul tells us Jews demand signs. Yeah, the, the demon thing is pretty cool. Here's a guy that wasn't able to talk, and, and now, uh, now he can speak, but now we'd like a sign. What, what do you mean? <laughs> Jesus rightly said in Luke 16, in the parable of Lazarus, he says, if people do not listen to Moses and the prophets, this is speaking to the rich man, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. People demand a sign, they demand a sign. God reveals himself and people refuse to believe it. So here's the important question. The important question is what is Jesus doing here? Who is he an agent of? Is he, in fact, an, an agent of God and establishing God's kingdom, acting on God's behalf? Or is Jesus, instead of being an agent of God, an agent of Satan, not establishing the kingdom of God, but instead establishing an evil kingdom, working to establish an evil kingdom? That's the important question, and it's a question that I would ask each of you to consider as well. Is Jesus Christ establishing the kingdom of God? For how you answer that question will radically change the way that you live. Let's consider option number one. Option number one, Christ is not establishing the kingdom of God, right? That's option number one. Listen to how Jesus presents it here, beginning in verse 17. It says that he knew their thoughts, and anytime it says that Jesus knew their thoughts, it's it's never like, Jesus knew their thoughts, that they were thinking nice things. Uh, it's always negative. <laughs> Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing that they're doubting him, wanting more signs, accusing him of being an agent of Satan, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. So here he is presenting this, 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 uh, this concept here, the, the concept that a divided house, divided entities don't do well. Remember, Alexander the Great established this kingdom. Then what happened after Alexander the Great's death? He, his kingdom was divided into to four territories. And how did, those, how did that divided kingdom do? Not very well. Abraham Lincoln used this, this phrase, a house divided, in his speech in June of 1858. June of 1858, he's been nominated to be the Republican candidate for the Senate. And he in his acceptance speech, gives a speech called A House Divided. He says this, he's, he's talking about the Kansas-Nebraska Act that allowed people to determine whether or not their territories would be slave or, or free uh, territories. He says, we are now into the fifth year of a, this compromise that was designed to uh, avoid this agitation. That's me paraphrasing. And then he says this, under the operation of this policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, said Abraham Lincoln, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will, all become, it will become all one thing or all the other. And then he says either slavery, the opponents of slavery will be victorious, or those who desire slavery to be legal everywhere will be victorious. Abraham Lincoln, his partner, said, as he gave this speech, his law partner said, he effectively ruined his chances of winning the, the Senate seat. But placed himself on the right side of history. Because Abraham Lincoln rightly recognized 
that a divided entity cannot be successful. Jesus is establishing this principle. Look, a divided entity can't do well. And then he gives two if sta- three if statements. He says, first of all, this in verse 18, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you're saying that I, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Look, if it's true that uh, I'm casting out demons, I'm influencing the spiritual wor- world and doing away with Satan's work, by Satan's hand, how well is his kingdom going to, to do? It's not going to do well because Satan's working against himself. That's, that's a ridiculous notion. Then he says this next if statement in verse 19. And if, if it's true that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, the, the chief prince of the demons, Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, look, if it's true that I'm uh, casting out demons by Satan and being effective in doing it, first of all, it's ridiculous because Satan's against himself. But also, if it's true that that's how I'm doing it, tell me, how are your disciples, your sons, the other Jewish exorcists engaging in the spiritual realm? Because here's the problem, guys. I'm effective. They're not. You bring a mute guy to me, and I have complete authority over him. You bring a mute guy to your, your you know, neighborhood Jewish exorcist, it's not going to be all that effective. The, the conclusion is, either I'm doing it by the hand of Satan, and the hand of God isn't as powerful as the hand of Satan, which is a blasphemous statement, or <clears throat> your guys are frauds, and I'm doing it by the hand of God. Those are your options. Logically, what you're accusing me of doing doesn't make sense. I'm healing a man under demonic influence here. I'm, I'm making a, 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 an attack upon the kingdom of Satan. Now, as Christ works to righteously establish a kingdom that you and I can participate in by faith, People accuse him of not establishing the kingdom of God. I want you to think about that in relation to our own lives. You know, throughout history, Christians, men and women of faith, have been accused of doing evil while pursuing righteousness. Christians, you know, today is July the 3rd, tomorrow we're celebrating our our nation's birthday. Christians have been accused of being unpatriotic throughout human history as they've, throughout the, the history of the church, as they've engaged in their culture and they've spoken truth to their culture. They've been accused of, of being uh, disloyal to the state. Let me suggest to you that as you work to establish Christ's kingdom in your life, People are going to look at you and say, you're not establishing the kingdom of God. What you're doing that you call good is actually evil. That's going to be the accusation leveled against you. Are you ready for that? For example, on economic issues, as we speak truth into our culture, we're going to speak some words that that I believe both, both conservatives and liberals are going to find very distressing and not agree with. We're going to speak things that liberals economic liberals aren't going to agree with because oftentimes those who are more liberal in our culture deny the reality of of evil and and the sinfulness of human hearts. 
We're going to say things like Proverbs 14, 23. In all toil, there is profit. Mere talk tends only to poverty. We're going to say things like you find in Proverbs 20, verse 4. We're going to say that the slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. And so as we look at poverty, we're going to say, look, that sometimes in poverty, there's a root sin issue here, and the sin issue has to be addressed. That's not going to be a very popular message. And as you proclaim that message, oftentimes in our culture, liberals are not going to celebrate that. But then at the same time as a Christian, as you proclaim God's truth, you're going to proclaim things about economic realities that, that conservatives aren't going to like very much, and conservatives are going to call evil. You're going to preach James 5. You're going to say, look, those of you who are rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That doesn't go well at the Republican National Convention. You know? That's not the text you'd use to, to fire up conservatives. It's the message the Christian preaches, though. The Christian doesn't proclaim that capitalism is the, the end all of all human suffering and misery. The believer proclaims that the pursuit of wealth is a dangerous pursuit to one's soul. And as you and I proclaim Christ's coming kingdom, other people are going to look at what we're saying and say, no, no, that's evil. I was talking to a person, a person came into my office who, who works in the the foster care industry, and a very, very, very nice uh, man, but had a very twisted thought. So we're talking about the, the foster care industry that he's involved in. He said, you know, one time I, I resigned in protest at, with the agency I was working with, and I said, well, what, what, were, what were they asking you to do? He says, they were telling me that I couldn't counsel a, a young woman to have an abortion. And he said, so I had a moral imperative to resign so that I could counsel this young woman to have an abortion. In other words, I resigned so that I could encourage this young woman to kill her child. Calling evil good and good evil, that's what our culture does. The culture looks at Jesus and says, as, as Jesus attacks the kingdom of Satan, they say, you're, you're part of Satan's kingdom. They call e good evil and evil good. I want to spend a little more time with this because it's, it's such an important issue that I think we as believers need to think through. And let me give you a very specific example, kind of a hot-button issue right now. You know, this, this past month in the state of New York, they, they legalized same-sex marriage, homosexual marriage. And even here in Illinois, within the last few months, they've, they've passed some legislation that, that, in effect, does much the same thing. Now, Here's the cultural reality that you're dealing with right now. If you're a believer who believes that Jesus' words on how to live are the right way to live, and you're trying to establish Jesus' kingdom, and you believe that Jesus is establishing a kingdom, if you're pursuing that, here's the reality you're living with now. You're living in a culture in which over half of Americans believe that those that people who desire that type of marriage should be able to have it. They're calling that which is not right good. And you, as you oppose that, are going to be called evil. That's the new reality that you're living in. It's the reality your children, if you have children, are going to experience as well in a more, far more profound way, most likely. Let me give you some things think about this specific issue, let me give you just four thoughts that I've had 
sorry, five thoughts I've had as I've, I've thought about how we respond to a culture that calls us evil as we preach righteousness. Number one, don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. Don't be like, wow, now civilization has ended. Uh, wow, we were this righteous country before. Now all of a sudden, this reality exists, and, and, and now society is just going down the tubes. Listen, uh, this is the normal, this is the normal trajectory of a culture that pursues selfishness and sexuality. We've pursued it in adultery, in pornography, in premarital sex. This shouldn't be this big shock to us. This is the reality of a culture that has pursued selfishness, selfishness in all different areas, especially in sexuality. We've set up pleasure of self as the highest moral objective. This shouldn't be shocking that this is the result. Secondly, not only should we not be shocked, secondly, we should work to establish Christ's kingdom through love, through love of those that we encounter that disagree with us and are pursuing something different with their lives. Al Mohler was speaking at the Southern Baptist Convention and said kind of some, some controversial remarks, and so he, he tried to clarify them. This is what he wrote. It was quoted in the Baptist press last month as, as saying, he's, he's talking about uh, several things here. He says, each of us makes a choice concerning what we're going to do in the face of temptation. We're fully accountable and fully responsible for that. So when it comes to the question of homosexual acts, choice is a fully legitimate category. But when it comes to that pattern of temptation, that pattern of temptation, we have simply known from our earliest self-understanding, I'm sorry, when it comes to that pattern of temptation, the reality is that all of us struggle with some kind of temptation that we have simply known from our earliest self-understanding. It could be gluttony, it could be dishonesty, it could be any number of things, but every single human being past the point of puberty has some form of sexual temptation, and we need to be honest about the fact that the pattern of sexual temptation is something that will represent a lifelong struggle. And so as we as the church consider this issue and how we're establishing Christ's kingdom and how some are going to call us evil, first of all, we're not shocked. Secondly, we work to establish the kingdom through loving understanding. We understand that the, the pattern of temptation for one person may be different than the pattern of temptation for another. My goal, my goal would be that Bethany Community Church is a church that a young person, an older person, could come forward to, to, to people they trust and say, you know what, this is the issue that, that I'm struggling with. And they wouldn't fear that there's some sin, some situation, some pattern of living that they're embroiled in that, that we as a church would say, we can't handle that. We don't want to even talk about that. You're way beyond the grace of God. And oftentimes, and Al Mohler uses the word homophobia, and he doesn't use it the way that radical militants do. He, he says, the church has been afraid of this, of this pattern of living, this sin, and har in a way that's harmful, especially to the young people in our churches that, that may be having honest struggles. How do I handle this temptation with this, and at the same time have this desire to glorify God with my life? Thirdly, thirdly, I'd say realize that you're going to be hated. Realize that you're going to be called evil. As you have this pursuit of evil that our culture is engaged in opposition to God's kingdom, you're going to be hated. Number four, it's important to know why you oppose 
why you oppose homosexual marriage, homosexuality. You know, it's not just, man, that's, a, that's just a gross sin. Our opposition is rooted in the same truths that, that made the people's accusation to Jesus so heinous. Our opposition is, first of all, living your life in a way that's contrary to how Jesus tells you to live is blasphemous. That's true of premarital sex. It's, it's true of adultery. It's, it's true of lying. It's true of gluttony. It's true of, of all different sins pursuing a course of action. Listen to this. Pursuing a course of action that's in disobedience with how Jesus Christ tells you to live is blasphemous. You're saying, you're not Lord. You don't have the right to tell me what to do. This is the kingdom that I'm going to establish for myself. It's blasphemy. Secondly, it's harmful. We don't want to blaspheme God. and We don't want to pursue a lifestyle or encourage others to pursue a lifestyle that's harmful. That's why we oppose homosexuality, as we oppose all patterns of living that are contrary to God's word. Now, I'm not a huge campaigner. You know, I'm not a guy that writes letters to the editor. Uh, I'm not a guy that writes companies. You know, if I wrote every company that did something I disagreed with, you know, I'd be writing everybody. I'd be writing Christian companies. It's just, I don't have the time. And I'm cynical about how effective it is. But recently, I, I, I did write a company. You know, I, I was just so, uh, so concerned. Uh, and I, you know, I got a form letter back. I, I wrote a clothing company. This clothing company had... Um, I can, it, it's, does it affect your, your buying patterns? Probably not. It was Old Navy. Old Navy, uh, in the month of June, had established this, um, this campaign in some of their stores where they sold t-shirts uh, promoting, uh, essentially promoting homosexuality in, 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 in young people, and it's kind of like a, the it's get, It Gets Better campaign, and their proceeds went to this campaign to help uh, children young people who are struggling with homosexual temptations to, to per- continue to pursue that lifestyle with the idea that even if it seems kind of tough now, your life is going to get better. And I said, look, this is the letter that I wrote that, that was uh, completely ineffective, I'm sure. Uh, I said, look, here's my concern. Every person ha- has a conscience given to them by God. And as they, they violate that conscience that God has given them, it's not going to get better their heart may become hardened to that, but, but you're, con- you're encouraging young people to live a lifestyle that's not going to bring them joy. And as you call them to live this lifestyle that's contrary to the kingdom, I didn't say this, but contrary to the kingdom that, that Christ is trying to establish through faith in him, you're, you're encouraging person to live a ruinous lifestyle. Very discouraging to me. Finally, finally, as you think about how to engage a culture, I encourage you to pursue holiness. Pursue holiness in your own life. It's one thing to say, uh, this is a wrong pattern of lifestyle, but this is the lifestyle I'm living, and, and these are the okay sins. No, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. So the question that's been asked is, is whose kingdom is Jesus established? Option number one, Christ is not established in the kingdom of God. He's an agent of Satan. And Jesus says, look, that's not logically possible. But even though that's not logically possible, that's the opposition's response to Jesus. Here's option number two. Option number two, Christ is establishing the kingdom of God. Here's his third if statement, verse 20. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If as I encounter the demonic realm and through the authority of God I'm casting out this demon, then understand this, the kingdom of God is here. 
The kingdom of God is, is here, and his kingdom is being established. And he says, verse 21, when a strong, he gives this illustration, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. The strong man here, the first strong man, represents Satan. Jesus is saying, when Satan has, has this kingdom that's been established, and king, Satan's kingdom is all about opposing the manifestation of the glory of God, all of us are originally part of Satan's kingdom. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We followed the course of the prince of the, 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 the air. He was our ruler. We lived in his kingdom. It's a powerful kingdom. It's a permeating kingdom. His kingdom works through deceit, causing people to call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. That's the kingdom of Satan. That's a strong kingdom. It's a powerful kingdom. And until Christ's intervention in a person's life, they have an inability to resist his kingdom. But, he says, verse 23, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Christ kingdom is stronger than Satan's kingdom. And what Jesus is saying here, what you've just witnessed is me plundering Satan's kingdom. Pretty awesome, huh? So here's the important question, whose kingdom is Christ establishing? One option, he's not establishing the kingdom of God. Option number two, he is establishing the kingdom of God. And as he establishes the kingdom of God, People are being transferred out of Satan's kingdom into Christ's kingdom and accepting him as Lord. That brings us to the last point here in verse 23 that causes us to need to make a decision. A decision is demanded. Verse 23, Jesus says simply, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's an unambiguous statement. It's very clear. It's not possible to be a conscientious objector when it comes to Jesus. Some people say, well, I'm not, I'm not some uh, fanatic who's out there yelling at Christian, Christians and, and undermining Christianity. I, I'm not a person who's, who's uh, producing tracts against Christianity. I'm just kind of a live and let live gal or a live and let live guy. Jesus says that's, that's not a possibility. You must consider my claims and see me as I'm, as I'm attacking the kingdom of Satan and establishing a kingdom for myself, and you must decide, am I going to turn from this worldly kingdom, a kingdom in which I've been trusting in myself, and am I going to turn to faith in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in him for my salvation, and work to establish his kingdom as I make him Lord of my life? So I'd say to each of you, you think about this verse, verse 23, a decision is demanded. And if, if Jesus was simply an agent of Satan or some imaginary figure or some, some, some person who, who didn't do all the things that Scripture says he did, if that's true, then, then Christ is not establishing his kingdom and, and you don't need to worry about it. But if, if Christ is right, and he did these things by the power of God, as God, 
that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And there is only one, only one legitimate response. That is to humble our hearts in faith. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation and make him Lord and ruler of our lives. What he says goes. How he tells us to live, we live. And we do it in humility and love as we encourage other people to experience the great joy of following our sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've given us it to to know how to live. Father, we are incapable of knowing how to live apart from your divine intervention. There are things that we pursue with our lives and our our lifestyles that are are contrary to how you've called us to live, and, and every single person in here is guilty of that. We ask for your forgiveness, and we ask for your grace in pursuing the life that you have called us to live by faith in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.